Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. October 14th, 1964, African-American civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his non-violent resistance to racial prejudice in America. At 35 years of age, the Georgia-born minister was the youngest person to receive the award. Martin Luther King Jr. was born in Atlanta in 1929, the son of a Baptist minister. He received a doctorate degree in theology and in 1955 organised the first major protest of the civil rights movement, the successful Montgomery bus boycott. King adhered to Gandhi's philosophy of non-violence and promoted non-aggressive civil disobedience to racial segregation. The peaceful protests he led throughout the American South were often met with violence, but King and his supporters persevered and their non-violent crusade gained momentum. powerful speechmaker, he appealed to the Christian and American principles and won increasing backing from the federal government and northern whites. In 1963, he led an enormous march on Washington, and in front of a quarter of a million people, he delivered his famous I Have a Dream address. Just prior to Dr. King accepting his Nobel Prize, in 1964, the civil rights movement achieved two of its greatest successes ratification of the 24th Amendment, which abolished the poll tax, and the introduction of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibited racial discrimination in employment and education, and outlawed racial segregation in public facilities. The 1964 Civil Rights Act outlawed discrimination based on race in the United States, but while legally black people were allowed to vote, some southern state officials obstructed their efforts to register. Local groups in Selma had already been agitating for change, but when Dr Martin Luther King chose it as the testing ground for his black voter registration campaign in early 1965, it drew national attention to the Alabama town. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Selma to Montgomery, Martin Luther King, and the March for Freedom.
have a dream. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's cool. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Selma, the county seat of Dallas County in the Black Belt region of south-central Alabama, had a rich history stretching back far beyond the time of the European settlers. Prior to their arrival, the land had been inhabited by the Native American people known as the Muscogee or the Creek. The first Europeans to arrive were the French, who named the area Ecorbienville. Was later renamed Moore's Bluff Settlement by Anglo-Americans before another notable king, William R. King, a politician and planter from North Carolina who would eventually go on to become vice president, planned and named the town Selma. The name Selma itself, meaning throne or high seat, is said to have come from a poem by James McPherson called The Songs of Selma. The town was an important centre for trade during the years of King Cotton in the South. During the Civil War, Selma was one of the South's main weapons manufacturing and iron shipbuilding centres. Vital for its production of tons of supplies and ammunition, it was also noted as the birthplace of the great Confederate warship, the ironclad Tennessee. And despite being protected by over three miles of fortified earthwork defences that surrounded the town, the undermanned Confederate forces were defeated here at the Battle of Selma in 1865. Following the war, Selma was declared the county seat of Dallas County, and so the county courthouse was built here. Most whites begrudged the former slaves being allowed the right to vote, and insurgents tried to keep white supremacy over the freed men. Typical of the southern states at this time, the white Democrats regained political power in the mid-1870s after overwhelming black voting through violence and fraud. Racial segregation in public facilities was imposed through the old Jim Crow laws and the city would go on to create its own police force. County law enforcement was run by an elected county sheriff whose authority included the grounds of the county courthouse and that was pretty much the state of affairs for the next hundred years. The early years of the 20th century would see state legislature introduce electoral requirements such as poll taxes and literacy tests. In effect, what this did was not only exclude most blacks, but also thousands of poor whites. And so, many were denied the chance not only to sit on juries, but also representation in government. Black voter registration and turnout dropped markedly in the South as a result. 
Men who had been voting for 30 years in the South were told that they didn't qualify to register. Without a legal voice from the black population, Selma, Dallas County and other jurisdictions carried out the segregation laws that were passed by the state. Following the two world wars where both the poor whites and the African Americans fought shoulder to shoulder, legal challenges against the southern discriminatory laws slowly began to take place. This, as well as the actions of private citizens, ensured that the black population was slowly becoming more active in attempting to exercise their constitutional rights. In the early 1960s, nearly half the population of Selma was black. Because of the constricting electoral legislation and practices, only 2% were registered to vote. Being unable to vote also meant you were not permitted to serve in local office or serve on juries. The barriers that were in place included literacy tests, which were administered in a subjective manner. There was widespread violence from the Ku Klux Klan and suppression on behalf of the local police force. Blacks who would be desperately trying to push the laws to the limit would attempt to eat at the whites only lunch counters or sit in the white section of the movie theatre would be routinely beaten and arrested. Selma was being informally but influentially run by the white citizens council. Created in 1955 it sought to keep the status quo of right supremacy in city life and community affairs. This would be tested in 1963 when Patricia Swift Blaylock successfully pushed for desegregation of the Dallas County Public Library in Selma. She put forward effectively that desegregation would be inevitable as recent protests in Birmingham and integration orders by the federal government in Montgomery could be used as examples of the potential troubles the people of Selma could expect. Blaylock stated that Selma could take care of its own integration process rather than have outsiders do it for them. A small step, but a very important one. James Gardner Clark Jr., or just plain Jim Clark as he was better known, was appointed Dallas County Sheriff in 1955 by his good friend the Governor of Alabama, Jim Folsom. Throughout 1963 and 1964, Clark, his police force and deputies, as well as a posse of volunteers, would furiously oppose the blacks' attempts to register as voters. Using varying methods of intimidation, beatings, arrests and economic retaliation, they would keep the blacks' efforts at bay through violence and fear. In Selma, the SNCC campaign was met with violence and intimidation by Clark, who waited at the entrance to the county courthouse, beating and arresting registrants at the slightest provocation. At one point, Clark arrested around 300 students who were holding a silent protest outside the courthouse, force-marching them with cattle prods to a detention centre three miles away. At another point, he was punched in the jaw and knocked down by a demonstrator, Annie Lee Cooper, who he was trying to make go home by poking her in the neck with a cattle prod after she had stood for hours at the courthouse in an attempt to register to vote. Mm -hmm. 
On July the 6th, 1964, one of two registration days that month, John Lewis led 50 black citizens to the courthouse, but Sheriff Clark arrested them all rather than allowing them to apply to vote. Three days later, local judge James Hare barred any gathering of three or more people under the backing of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Dallas County Voters League and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. The SCLC's president was Dr Martin Luther King. This injunction made it illegal for more than two people at a time to talk about civil rights or voter registration in Selma, suppressing public civil rights activity there for the next six months. Defying this illegal injunction, King was invited by the Dallas County Voters League to speak at Brown Chapel on January 2nd, 1965, and it was here that the voting rights campaign was truly born. King had won the Nobel Peace Prize just three months earlier, and it was hoped that his higher profile would draw attention to Selma during the eventful months that followed. It was also anticipated that the notorious brutality of local law enforcement under Sheriff Jim Clark would attract national attention and pressure President Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress to enact new national voting rights legislation. The campaign continued in Selma and nearby Marion. The marches and demonstrations prompted Alabama Governor George C. Wallace to ban nighttime demonstrations in both towns. For the first month, there were mass arrests but little violence. All this would change, however, on the night of the 18th of February. A young 26-year-old church deacon from Marion, Jimmy Lee Jackson, was taking part in a non-violent march in the town. The local police were joined by Alabama state troopers to break up the demonstration. During the resultant commotion, as Jackson attempted to protect his own mother from a trooper's nightstick, he was gunned down by one of the officers, James Fowler. Jackson died from his injuries eight days later in a Selma hospital. And so, on March the 7th, 1965, in response to Jackson's death, 600 civil rights marchers gathered at Brown Chapel Church before leaving Selma on Highway 80 and heading east towards the capital. On this particular day, Dr King was not present as he was preaching in Atlanta. Instead, Jose Williams and John Lewis led the march. Surprisingly, as they marched through the town itself, there was not one policeman in sight but it was to become a dark day that would go down in history as the turning point for the modern civil rights movement, and horrified TV viewers across the country would watch events unfold on what would become known as Bloody Sunday. The march had been organised by James Bevel, the Director of Direct Action for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and as the 600 marchers continued eastward, they reached the Edmund Pettus Bridge. 
The bridge was 250 foot long and spanning the Alabama River it had been built in 1940 and was named after Edmund Winston Pettus, a former Confederate Brigadier General, US Senator and Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. Due to the bridge's design, as the protesters continued across it, they were unable to see what awaited them on the east side until they reached the top of the bridge at its centre, 100 feet above the river. There, waiting for them, stood Sheriff Jim Clark, Major John Cloud, and a blockade of armed state troopers and local lawmen. Clark, dressed in his customary military-style uniform and sporting a badge on his chest which just depicted one word, never, stood steadfast in front of the 600. The protesters continued their march, after all, this was a peaceful and non-violent act of defiance. The crowd was ordered to disperse, but as one, they continued onwards. What then unfolded was one of the most brutal and sickening incidents of the civil rights campaign. The crowds were attacked by the horse-mounted lawmen who were armed with billy clubs, cattle prods and tear gas. Cheered on by white onlookers, the crowd was repeatedly and savagely beaten to the ground and mown down by the horses. At one point, when someone called for an ambulance, Sheriff Jim Clark replied, let the buzzards eat them. The events unfolded live on national TV, whose coverage of the premiere of Judgment at Nuremberg had been interrupted. Appalling images of bloody and injured marchers filled the television screens from coast to coast. The following day, national and international newspapers would be full of stories of what had happened. There would be front page headlines and photos of Amelia Boynton, one of the organisers, as she lay face down, unconscious on the bridge having been on the receiving end of a state trooper's nightstick. Images of innocent people covered in blood and blinded by tear gas shocked not only the American public, but the entire world. In total, 50 of the marchers were treated for their injuries and a further 17 who were more seriously injured required hospital treatment. SNCC leader John Lewis, who had been one of the leaders of the event, appeared on TV his head wounds still clearly evident, and he said, I don't see how President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam. I don't see how he can send troops to the Congo. I don't see how he can send troops to Africa and he can't send troops to Selma. That evening, outraged by what he'd witnessed, Martin Luther King began an onslaught of public statements and furious telegrams. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. 
King would call upon the religious leaders from all over the nation to join together two days later in what he described as the peaceful, non-violent march for freedom. And as plans were being put in place for the next demonstration, Federal District Judge Frank M. Johnson informed the movement's attorney, Fred Gray, that he would be issuing a restraining order prohibiting the march until at least the 11th of March. President Johnson attempted to reason with King to call off the march at least until the federal court order could provide some sort of protection to the demonstrators. Martin Luther King consulted deep into the night and through to the early hours of the morning with the Deputy Chief of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division along with the other civil rights leaders having been forced to consider whether to disobey the pending court order. King's decision was this. On the 9th of March, along with 2,000 marchers, over three times the original number, King proceeded to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The protesters' numbers were swollen by the inclusion of hundreds of clergy who had answered King's call on short notice. And in a symbolic gesture, King would lead the crowd to the site of Sunday's attack, stop dead in his tracks, and then ask all of those that followed to kneel and pray. The crowd then rose, turned around, and marched back to Selma. By doing this, King successfully avoided another confrontation with the state troopers and avoided the issue to obey Johnson's court order. Many of those present were critical of this unexpected decision not to proceed on to Montgomery. The show of restraint was praised by President Johnson, who in a public statement said, Americans everywhere join in deploring the brutality with which a number of Negro citizens of Alabama were treated when they sought to dramatise their deep and sincere interest in attaining the precious right to vote. And most importantly, Johnson promised to introduce a voting rights bill to Congress within a few days. James Reeb, a 38-year-old white minister, had answered Dr King's call for support. An active member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Reeb had gone to Selma to join the protests. That evening, March the 9th, after eating dinner at an integrated restaurant, Reeb and two other Unitarian ministers, the Reverend Clark Olson and Reverend Orloff Miller, were beaten by white men with clubs for their support of the African-American's rights. Several hours passed before Reeb was admitted to a Birmingham hospital where doctors performed brain surgery. While Reeb was on his way to the hospital, Dr King addressed a press conference lamenting the cowardly attack and asking all to pray for his protection. Reeb died two days later. His death resulted in a national outcry and contributed to the rising national concern over the situation in Alabama. President Johnson personally contacted Reeb's widow offering his condolences and met with Alabama Governor George Wallace pressuring him to protect the marchers. President Johnson would also appear before Congress on the 15th of March and in a landmark speech he would identify himself with the demonstrators at Selma 
by adopting the anthem of the civil rights movement, We Shall Overcome, as his own. So I ask you to join me in working long hours, nights, and weekends if necessary to pass this bill. And I don't make that request lightly. Far from the window where I sit with the problems of our country, I recognize that from outside this chamber is the outraged conscience of a nation, the grave concern of many nations, and the harsh judgment of history on our acts. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. It was reported that Martin Luther King was watching the speech at the home of a family in Selma with some of his aides none of whom had ever, during all the years of the Troubles, had seen King cry. But when Lyndon Johnson said, We shall overcome, Martin Luther King wept. The following day, Selma demonstrators submitted a detailed march plan to federal judge Frank M. Johnson Jr., who approved the demonstration and ordered Governor Wallace and local law enforcement from harassing or threatening the marchers. On the 17th of March, President Johnson submitted voting rights legislation to Congress. And on the same day, Federal District Court Judge Johnson ruled in favour of the marchers, stating... The law is clear that the right to petition one's government for the redress of grievances may be exercised in large groups. The following day, Governor Wallace went before the state legislature to condemn the judge's ruling. He stated that Alabama could not provide the security measures needed, blamed the federal government, but also said he would call on the federal government for help. And so Governor Wallace sent a telegram to President Johnson saying that the state didn't have enough troops and he couldn't bear the financial burden of calling up the Alabama National Guard. President Johnson's response on the 20th of March was to issue an executive order federalising the Alabama National Guard and authorising whatever federal forces the Defence Secretary deemed necessary.
And that, finally, was it. The third and final march, now federally sanctioned, left Selma on the 21st of March. The crowds were protected along the entire route by Alabama National Guardsmen and FBI agents. The marchers would cover between 7 and 17 miles per day, camping out at night and being entertained by stars such as Harry Belafonte, Lena Horne and Sammy Davis Jr., who had joined them and lent their support. Limited by Judge Johnson's order to 300 marchers over a stretch of two-lane highway, the number of demonstrators swelled on the last day to over 25,000, accompanied by Assistant Attorneys General John Dorr and Ramsey Clark, and former Assistant Attorney General Burt Marshall, among others. And finally, the crowds would reach their goal 50 miles away at the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery, a goal that only two weeks before had appeared to some as being as achievable as sending a man to the moon. In his address to the crowds at the rally that day, Dr King would proclaim, The end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience, and that will be a day not of the white man, not of the black man. That will be the day of man as man. But today, as I stand before you and think back over that great march, I can say, as Sister Pollock said, a 70-year-old Negro woman who lived in this community during the bus boycott, and one day she was asked while walking if she didn't want to ride, and when she answered no, the person said, well, aren't you tired? With her ungrammatical profundity, she said, My feet's is tired, but my soul is rested. That's right. And in a real sense this afternoon, we can say that our feet are tired, yes. but our souls are rested. They told us we wouldn't get here. Now with those who said that we would get here only over their dead body. Well, talk, talk. Yes. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. That's right. That's right. And in summing up, Dr. King would tell the crowd that freedom was imminent. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, Yes, sir. However frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed earth will rise again. Yes, sir. How long? Not long. Yes, sir. Because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. How long? Not long. Yes, sir. Because you shall reap 
what you sow. Yes, sir. How long? How long? How long? Do forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yes, sir. that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long? Not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's traveling out the village where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible with sword, yes, his truth is marching on. Yes, he has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. Lisa. Lisa. He is lifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Yes. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Yes. Glory, hallelujah. Yes, Glory, hallelujah. Viola Liuzzo was a housewife and a mother of five. She had been an active NAACP member in Detroit and was horrified at the violence she saw inflicted upon black protesters on television. So, when she heard of the four-day, 54-mile walk from Selma to Montgomery to support voting rights, she packed a bag, told her husband, it's everybody's fight, kissed the children goodbye and began the drive south. After completing the march and watching Dr. King give his not long speech that evening, Ryuzo, tired but still exhilarated from the events of the past few days, shuttled local marchers back to their homes. A car filled with Ku Klux Klan members tried to force her off the road. They pulled alongside Ryuzo's car and shot her in the head. The 39 year old died instantly. And on the 6th of August 1965, ten months after being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and five months after the events at Selma, 
Dr Martin Luther King, along with other civil rights leaders, witnessed President Johnson sign the Historic Voting Rights Act of 1965, which effectively would now overcome all of the legal barriers at state and local level that have prevented African Americans from exercising their right to vote under the 15th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Along with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act was one of the most expansive pieces of civil rights legislation in American history. Its effects greatly reduced the disparity between black and white voters in the US and allowed a greater number of African Americans to enter political life at the local, state and national level. Ultimately, those three marches in 1965 managed to demonstrate the courage of the African Americans. They had overcome their fears and peacefully defied the racist taunts and threats as they pursued not only Dr King's dream, but their dream as well. Next time, why don't you join me as we travel back to one of the most eventful years of the swinging decade. It was the year of the Berlin Wall, Breakfast at Tiffany's and the First Man in Space. George Blake, G.I. Blues, Rudolf Nureyev and Yo-Yos. See you next time as I bring you the hits and headlines from 1961. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast. Take a look at our website, rainbowvalley.org. Send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Pause production.